Great to see all of you again. Uh, my name is Charlie Campbell. For those of you uh, who may be new to the church, we have a lot of history, though, here. Um, what, a, what a treat it is to always come back and uh, be here at Calvary Chapel, South Bay. Great memories here with you all. Well, if you have a Bible this evening, go ahead and open up with me, if you would, to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Of course, Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 3 and then pray one more time. Book of Jude, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screens for you as well. Notice what Jude writes here. He says, beloved, don't you like that we're addressed in that way as children of God? He says, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're just so thankful to be here tonight. We're thankful to have had this time to worship you now. And and God, we're eager now to consider the scriptures. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts and that you would teach us tonight, that you would equip us to be better prepared to dialogue with skeptics and atheists and people who have questions and doubts about your existence and the trustworthiness of the Bible. So God, work to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever tried to talk to a non-Christian friend about God or the Bible only to have your attempts shot out of the sky? (laughs) with an objection like there are no good evidences for God and religions including Christianity are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering and atrocities and and the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide so I I could certainly never believe in that God And, and the Bible condones slavery and oppresses women and promotes hatred of homosexuals. Many critics of Christianity have an arsenal of these conversation-halting objections ready to unload at the slightest inkling that a Christian is trying to talk to them about Jesus. Have you heard some of these objections? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, surely you have. Question for you, were you prepared to contend earnestly for the faith as we're told to do so here in Jude verse 3? What is Jude saying here when he exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, that word contend literally means to fight. The word earnestly means seriously or intensely. And that phrase, the faith, of course, refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So 
Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instructs Christians here in this passage to put up a strong, intense fight for the truth of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand him. Jude doesn't mean that we're to get into physical fights with people. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 tells us that we're to live peaceably with all people. So Jude's not talking about physically confronting people. Jude is talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions, the false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. God's people are not to sit on the sidelines while the truth is being undermined and attacked. We're to lovingly, boldly put up a strong fight by proclaiming and defending the truth. This doesn't mean that you need to be on a street corner with a megaphone or behind a pulpit. No, you can contend for the faith over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. You can contend for the faith by just reposting a quote on Facebook or Instagram, there are lots of ways that you as a Christian can join the fight. There is a war going on. There's a truth war going on. The devil is seeking to mislead and deceive people and drag people down to hell with him. That's why this is so important. There are real souls at stake in this war. And God doesn't want us sitting on the side. He wants us engaged, putting up a fight for the truth. Well, to help us be better prepared to contend for the faith, tonight I'd like to answer some of the errors, the misconceptions and false teachings that people are bringing up today about God and the Bible. I hope it's helpful to you. The first misconception or error that I'd like to address tonight concerns the topic of slavery. People say that the Bible condones slavery and that only evil, selfish men would concoct a book like that. Many people who reject the Bible today seem to think that the Bible endorses slavery. Have you heard that? How might we respond to that? Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out to them that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity and it wouldn't exist if it were not for humans living in rebellion to God's instructions. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. In both the Old and New Testaments, we're also instructed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, question for you. How could slavery flourish if we were all loving and treating one another that way? A loving person doesn't kidnap people, lock them up, and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel and evil. And the biblical authors realize that. Kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty 
in the Old Testament. Where so? Well, verses like Exodus chapter 21. Verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If you were found guilty of stealing and selling a human being, or even if you were found to have purchased a stolen person, you were to be put to death. There would probably be a lot fewer abductions today if kidnappers were swiftly put to death, as was prescribed in the Old Testament. Another verse that made it clear, kidnapping people and forcing them to be slaves is wrong is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse seven. It says there, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So the Old Testament made it clear these activities were wrong. What about the New Testament? Does it take a softer stand on slavery? No. In the New Testament, enslavers, men stealers, and slave traders are condemned alongside murderers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Well, this raises a question. Why then do some people believe that the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I think it's because the Bible does have a handful of verses instructing people on how to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants to pay off debts. This is discussed in Leviticus chapter 25. And that was very common. So for the servant's sake, God gave the Israelites instructions regarding the treatment of servants. The instructions were given to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. For example... Exodus chapter 20 verse 10 said that servants were to have every seventh day of the week off. Notice the verse, Exodus 20 verse 10 says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. So note that servants, just like every other beloved member of the family, were to also enjoy the Sabbath day as a day of rest. Deuteronomy chapter 23 said to not mistreat a slave. In verses 15 and 16, it says, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases who? Him. He gets to pick where he wants to live. You, it says, shall not mistreat him. One other verse in Colossians 4, verse 1. Paul said, masters, treat your bondservants cruelly. Is that what it says? No. Justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
So as you can see, these instructions in the Bible regarding servants were given to ensure that servants were treated justly and fairly. The Bible never encouraged or endorsed the horrific kind of slavery that involved the kidnapping and selling of humans. Well, Charlie, the the God of the Old Testament commanded genocide, the, the wiping out of the Canaanite people in the book of Joshua. A loving God would never command such a thing. When someone brings this up, you might ask him this question. Have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask them this question. Do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? the answer will almost always be no. So when they say that, I like like to humbly bring them up to speed regarding what the Canaanites were up to at the time of Joshua. The Bible describes who they were, the activities they were engaging in. They were an exceedingly wicked people, the Bible says who were sacrificing their babies to their God, Molech, on burning altar. They were committing incest, adultery, polygamy, bestiality, witchcraft, and a variety of other abominable customs. The Canaanites had become a dangerous threat not only to their own posterity and their neighbors, but to the Israelites. So God determined the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And so he sent in the Israelites to put a stop to the wickedness. God created the earth and all of its inhabitants, and he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his planet. All of life belongs to him. Think back with me to World War II. Many people believe that the Allied powers, which of course included the U.S., had a moral obligation, even a God-given obligation, to go to war against Japan and the Nazis to stop the great evils they were committing. Question for you. If human governments have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible had lived at the time of Joshua and and were aware of the great atrocities that were going on, in the land of Canaan, they probably would have been in favor of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists commonly say today, if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to all the evil we see going on in the world. Well, in the book of, Je- uh, in the book of Joshua, we have an example of God 
putting a stop to some of the evil and atheists say a loving God would never do that. I, I don't know. It seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. That's the problem. Well, Charlie, surely God doesn't exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. People who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, he healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved that he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone repent and believe in him? No. They dragged him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows that he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. What evidence, someone asks? How about the fine-tuning of the universe? the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms, the information encoded into DNA, hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, just for starters. I agree with the Christian apologist, Norman Geisler, who wrote this. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet he has also left some ambiguity so as, to, so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom, end quote. I so agree with that. I also concur with Christian apologist and Biola professor J.P. Moreland, who said in an interview with Lee Strobel a while back, he said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free, end quote. God is so wise. He maintains that perfect balance. I love that insight by JP. Well, the skeptic says, Charlie, the, the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. When someone tells me that, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, automobile manuals, (laughs) everything the IRS sends us. All written by men, throw it out. (laughs) Men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as the biblical authors did. 
Many who think that the Bible is just a collection of cleverly devised fables and legends overlook the fact that there is a wealth of evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness. Of course, I'm talking about its hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, its incredible internal harmony, uh, historical confirmation in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, uh, different scientific discoveries that have helped to validate different details in the Bible. There's the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writings of Flavius Josephus, and on and on the list goes. Next Thursday night, I'm going to be back with you and we're going to be examining uh, some of this kind of evidence for the Bible. So I won't elaborate on it uh, at this time. If you're not able to be back here Thursday night, you can stop by my resource table uh, tonight after the service and, you know, We've got books and DVDs out there that can quickly bring you up to speed on that. But another objection I've been hearing more and more lately has to do with the size of the universe. Atheists commonly say this, the universe is so vast, so massive. It's it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. As we have come to learn in the last century, the universe with its billions of stars and galaxies is just enormous. Well, some atheists are pointing to this now and saying that it's absurd to think God would create all these stars and planets if our tiny planet was really the focus of his love. Well, in response to that, Christians have a totally different perspective. We agree with David, who wrote in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the worlds. The enormous galaxies and stars testify to the existence of an incredibly powerful, omnipotent God. Now, of course, if the atheist was God, maybe he or she would have created a tiny little planet with no stars or no galaxies for us to look up at and be amazed with. But the true and the living God decided to create a massive universe full of billions of stars and interesting things for us to look at and be in awe of. And don't you love that he did? Just about every night, I'll take the trash out around the side of the house where our trash bins are. And just about nightly, I look up and I'm just blown away over and over again at the stars, how beautiful they are and just how how they remind me of how incredibly powerful our God must be to have created all of these massive stars. You know, if God had made a tiny universe, with no other planets or stars, I, I, I'm certain that atheists would complain. 
and say, if God was really such a great and powerful creator, he should have made a massive universe and displayed his creative abilities. (laughs) But that's the very thing he did create, an atheist scoff. Again, no matter what God did or does, those who want nothing to do with him find fault. Well, the rest of us will worship him. Amen. This next objection has to do with a snake. I'm sure you've heard it. Atheists and skeptics say, a talking snake in the Garden of Eden, really? I mean, how, how, how do you believe this stuff? Atheists often bring up the talking snake objection as a quick way of shutting down conversations about the Bible. This objection is all over the place on the internet. Well, in response to this objection, you Bible students know that the Bible was not referring to an ordinary snake speaking. Scripture reveals to us that the serpent in Eden was actually Satan, an angel who had rejected God and was intent on leading the first humans to join the rebellion. And Satan is still deceiving people today. Question for you. Do you think inorganic, non-living matter like rocks or hydrogen would ever be able to talk? No. Even if you gave the matter millions of years to put together a speech, we'd never expect it to speak. The thought that the matter might speak or uh, you know, make even some inaudible sounds sounds more absurd than an ordinary snake speaking, for at least a snake has a mouth. But millions of people today believe that a long time ago, inorganic, non-living material sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins calls literally nothing. Then a very long time after that, the matter came to life busted into all kinds of living parts and machinery packed with information that somehow attached themselves to each other to form different organisms. Then these organisms slowly evolved into male and female human bodies with 206 bones, about 700 muscles and hearts that beat more than 100,000 times a day, pumping blood through 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in the human body. Then these humans, having developed eyes, mouths, tongues, lungs, ears, and brains, were finally able to create and speak a variety of different languages. Friends, can you understand why millions of intelligent people find that evolutionary fable a thousand times harder to believe than the biblical account of a fallen angel speaking to Eve? Why do so many people believe the evolutionary fable today? Well, Satan, who deceived Eve, is still at work deceiving people today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you've rejected Jesus and the gospel seems like foolishness to you, there's a good chance you've been deceived, either directly or indirectly, by the very one who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
Jesus called him the father of lies in John chapter eight, verse 44. But you're here tonight or you're watching this on the internet. So that's good. We pray that God would use this time to bring you into a relationship with himself. Well, the skeptic says, you can say evolution is a fable, but it's a fact that humans evolved. Of course, when it comes to the evolution of humans, atheists commonly state that it is settled science and a proven fact. Well, friends, despite the repetition of those kinds of claims, this is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the once there was nothing and now we have humans theory of evolution. First, the theory can't even get off the ground when you start with what Richard Dawkins says was literally nothing. Why? Because nothing can't do anything. But even if the universe was able to spring into existence from nothing and then eventually provide an environment where the first cell could come to life and then develop into all the other different types of cells and machinery to make up different life forms, there are still so many more problems. I can't get into all of them this evening, but one fatal blow to the theory of evolution that I think all Christians should be familiar with is the fossil record. The fossil record. If evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers but it does not. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. Friends, this is devastating to the theory of evolution. And the so-called ape men fossils that have been put forth as proof for evolution have again and again turned out to be a great embarrassment to evolutionists. Consider Piltdown men. In 1912, in the village of Piltdown, England, Charles Dawson, an amateur paleontologist, found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between humans and apes. For 40 years, it was taught in American and European schools as proof of human evolution until it was exposed as a colossal hoax. 40 years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. 
piltdown man was a forgery. Well, what about Neanderthal men? The first human fossil assemblage described as Neanderthal was discovered in 1856 in Neander Valley in Germany. School children were taught for decades that Neanderthal man was proof of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans, not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. What about Java men? Java man was based on the discovery of a skull cap, a thigh bone, and three teeth discovered on the island of Java in the late 1800s. The discovery became widely known as a missing link and was published in textbooks and trumpeted around the world as such until it was discredited as a hoax after the thigh bone was found to belong to a human and the skull cap to an ape. What about Nebraska man? Nebraska man is depicted in this artistic propaganda from the time was based off a 1917 discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. Pretty incredible what someone can draw based on a single tooth. Don't you think? Well, evolutionary scientists were certain that the tooth was from an ape man. It was loudly and proudly put forth as proof of human evolution until several years later when it was proved to be the tooth of a pig. (laughs) What about Lucy? Unearthed in 1974 in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity in newspapers, textbooks, on television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary research, researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of humans. Surprise, surprise. What about Ida? Sure, most of you heard about her back in 2009. In 2009, the press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world. But Ida was more recently reclassified as a small tailed extinct primate, an ancestor not of humans, but of lemurs. Oops. Friends, the fossil record, mark my words, has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution. And we know why. Humans are not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution. We were created by God. Genesis chapter two, verse seven says, God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being your body was designed and you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God isn't that a blessing to know now obviously lots more can be said about evolution you can find additional help uh, regarding that topic on our website at alwaysbeready.com but the atheist says Charlie if God exists why won't he just heal and amputee by restoring his limb then we would all know he exists This particular objection has become very popular 
on the internet. There's websites dedicated to this objection, this challenge. Many atheists are saying if God would just miraculously restore someone's missing body part, that would be sufficient proof for his existence. But since atheists have never witnessed this kind of miracle, they conclude that God must not exist. Question for you. Do you think if people reported that a man whose arm had been amputated and his arm miraculously restored in answer to a prayer that many atheists would repent and place their faith in Jesus? Uh, I have a hard time envisioning that. Think back to that night Jesus was betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane and how he miraculously restored the missing ear of the high priest's servant. Did the people repent and believe in Jesus when they beheld that miracle? No. In fact, they continued arresting him, then led him off to be brutally beaten and put to death on a cross the very next morning. How about the times Jesus raised dead people back to life? Those were greater miracles than restoring missing limbs. Surely everyone would repent and believe in Jesus after those astounding miracles. No. Those who hated Jesus concluded that his miracles were accomplished by demonic powers. But what if Jesus empowered his followers then to work miracles? Maybe people would believe in him then. Well, that's the very thing Jesus did with his first disciples. He sent them out to the world with the power to perform miracles. And according to the gospels in the book of Acts, God wrought many miracles through them. And they were subsequently beaten, imprisoned, and put to death by people who did not want to repent. People who want to continue in sin are always able to find an excuse to reject God. So miracles really aren't that effective at changing people's minds or hearts. They rarely produce the kind of results atheists say that they would. Quoting Abraham, Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Are you a skeptic here today? Think about your own life. Is your rejection of God really because of a lack of miracles? Or might you just desire to live without any accountability to a moral lawgiver, God? It's usually the latter. But friend, if that's, if that's you, I want to urge you tonight to stop rejecting God. The person who persists in saying, I don't want you in my life, God, ends up getting his way in the end. No God. But with that comes no heaven, only hell. And there will be nothing in hell that will bring you joy, peace, or comfort. Those are blessings that belong to those who are in fellowship with the God who freely and graciously distributes those. Another common objection I hear people say is this, the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If anyone says this to you, 
you might ask them this question. Have you read the entire Bible? Or did you just, you know, pick up that line somewhere? If the person says, yes, I have read the whole Bible, you might follow up with this question. What passages in the Bible did you find most oppressive? Tell me about them. Let's, let's have a conversation about that and see what they say. I've been reading and studying the Bible since 1990 when I became a Christian. And it's clear to me, and I'm sure to most of you, that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. That's a good place to say amen, you husbands. Right there, amen. Preach it, right? (laughs) But millions of women who read the Bible every day have also concluded that God loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says that men and women are both made in the image of God and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives, even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves. They've read about the wonderful friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth and Deborah and Priscilla and others who are portrayed in a wonderful light in the Bible. And they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women, like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife and rape. Friends, if people would follow the teachings of the Bible more closely today, the world would be a much better place for women. I am certain of that. This next objection has to do with wars and suffering. Atheists and skeptics commonly say that religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Unfortunately, misguided religious people have caused a lot of suffering. What terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests and others have done is terribly hurtful to people. And to some degree, most if not all of us have contributed to people's low view of religion, God, and the Bible, for, of course, all of us have sinned and disappointed people in a variety of ways. God forgive us, and may he continue to work on us. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this particular objection. First, atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century, far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past 500 years. So it just isn't true that religious people are responsible for most of the world's deaths and uh, wars and suffering. A second thing that I think that often gets overlooked when this topic comes up is this. Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit, even if the people claim to be Christians. Anything evil or sinful a person does goes against Jesus's instructions. 
Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others like we want to be loved and treated. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 12, he said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is commonly called the golden rule. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If people would follow the teachings of Jesus, the world would be much more loving. So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus's feet. All right, allow me to respond to just one last objection and then we'll wrap it up. If you're out sharing the gospel with people, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, you should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, I think it's probably pretty rare that a Christian is actually trying to force uh, their beliefs on people. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really all that we're doing. We're not trying to force people to believe. We're simply explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life to people. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If someone had the cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider that a crime. Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. It's the cure for your guilt before a holy, righteous God. That's why Christians share the gospel. Because of Jesus' death in your place, for your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of all your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and death condemnation in hell and God says no no I've got something way better how about forgiveness of all your sins and the free gift of everlasting life friend if you need to lay hold of that gift I want to urge you to do it tonight stop running from God turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ while there's still time for you you can call upon God tonight. He's a prayer away. And say, God, forgive me for my sins. I, I, I place my trust in Jesus Christ to save me. If you'll do that, God will forgive you of your sins and grant you everlasting life. It's a free gift. It's up to you what you'll do with that. For the rest of you who have already done that, may the God of heaven and earth empower, embolden, and use you in a mighty way to get the gospel out and to contend for the faith in this generation. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to just quickly mention two resources. If you'd like to go a little deeper than what we were able to cover tonight in 45 minutes, I want to let you know uh, I have a new edition of a book I wrote in 2005. I recently updated it. Uh, it's called One Minute Answers. 
to skeptics. If you enjoyed learning some concise ways of answering skeptics' questions tonight, uh, I think you'll love this new edition of the book. I tackle what I think are atheists and skeptics' top 50 objections uh, to the Bible with just short one or two minute long answers. And then don't forget our uh, flash drive, our blue flash drive. This has all 33 of my DVD presentations on it. Uh, you can stick that thing into uh, a TV, USB slot or computer. You can transfer the videos onto your iPad, however you wanna watch them. So if you'd like to go further, getting equipped to contend for the faith, we've got some resources at my book table tonight. Let me go ahead and close in prayer and then uh, we'll close in a final song. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word. And God, we're so thankful tonight that we can have a reasonable faith, a faith that stands up to the critics, a faith that has answers, a faith that's rooted and grounded in the truth. But of course, we know that that faith is under fire today. God, so we do pray tonight that you would strengthen and embolden us to lovingly contend for the faith. We want to be used by you in this time, in this generation to get the gospel out to people and point people to Jesus, God. So we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit tonight, God. We need you, we look to you, Lord, for fresh power. And God, for anyone here tonight, Lord, who doesn't know you in a personal way, or maybe they're watching this on the internet, God, we pray that tonight would be the night of salvation for them, that they would look to Jesus, that they would call out to you and ask for your forgiveness and enter into a relationship with you. Help them to do that, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.